Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Antoinette. How are you doing today? Doing all right. I'm very excited to get started on this episode of Recovering Academics. Yes. So now it's my turn to pick the topic, and I'm really excited to talk about this with you because I think that you and I have perspectives that will weigh in on this really nicely. So I found an article, and this was an opinion piece. I'll say that much. It was an opinion piece, but it had a lot of traction, and that's why I thought, geez, I, I wonder what my friend thinks about this. But basically, this um, man is writing about whether or not lecturing is a racist practice that we are using in colleges and universities. And he is justifying the different learning styles, so active learning versus lecturing, and the idea that a lot of the kids in, um, kids who come from like low income areas and um, who maybe don't have access to, you know, the, the top of the line type of education stuff, such as private schools and, you know, best equipment, things like that. Those people tend to be the ones who identify with being more of the kinesthetic and visual types of learners. And so they're mm -hmm. not going to be served very well with lecturing and note taking. And, you know, so I thought about it because quite honestly, you and I are both English majors and I have seen a huge overhaul with what papers look like in school. And for those listening, I made air quotes at her with papers because it, what, what we had to write as papers, and I mean, I was in college at a different time than Elizabeth was. So what you were writing as papers looked different from what I was writing as papers versus what they're doing now. And I know that for me, it was a very regimented, you had to get to eight to 10 pages to even qualify it as a research paper. There were a ton of standards, there was a ton of formatting. And now I see that we are favoring short form. And I think that that does serve our students better. I didn't like writing eight to 10 page papers. I just did it because that's what they told me I had to do. Not to say that it works, you know what I mean? And I feel like this might be the same type of a change that we're seeing with the idea of lecturing. Um, because if it's lecturing like the old traditional style that we know of where, you know, it's basically just your instructor at the front, you could have as many as 300 other people in the room with you. And you know, they're just basically reading off and maybe showing some slides, maybe writing on the board, but you are just taking notes. So what do you think about that? Do you think that, first of all, I guess my question is two parts. It's, do you think that that is changing just like we saw the paper change? And then number two, do you think that lecturing is racist necessarily? Because that was kind of a loaded part of what was written in this op-ed. Okay. Well, um, I, I, I do want to stress also to anyone who's listening I really just learned the topic right now. Um, so I, I like this little, this little element of surprise. Um, I have never thought about lecturing as being racist, but now that you mention it, it does tie in with some other unease that I have uh, when it comes to lectures and with, mm -hmm. with that format. And when I'm thinking about my own um, lack of ease with accepting lectures uh, or, or thinking that they're, um, they're as worthwhile as they were when I was in college, um, as I'm thinking about it, yes, I can see how, how that argument can be made because there is something. Um, when I think of lecturing, even the word, okay, it, there's a little bit of um, condescension. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and that idea of the sage on the stage, mm -hmm. okay? these, these terms that Mr. Faldez taught us yes. um, that, that have been around, but he really used those, you know, and he would say dance teacher dance. And when I think about it, yes, um, it, 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 there's something about that. I mean, I remember in college just being so enamored by these tremendously talented lecturers. Okay. Mm -hmm. They went ahead and they were so wise and so smart and so gifted and so articulate. And, um, I sat there in awe mm -hmm. and, uh, looking back, I'm, I'm going to tell you, um, you know, the 25 years past the fact, do I remember what I learned? <laughs> no. 
I remember from having written, I remember from discussions, I remember from other activities, the lecture activity, I maybe recall uh, three or four lectures that really stand out in my mind, but for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember a biology professor uh, explaining menstruation to a lecture hall of like 200 and some of us. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, roughly women make up 48 to 51% of the, the population there probably. Um, but anyway, with him saying, explaining menstruation, and he said, and some women are known to experience slight discomfort, in which case you figured out how many women were in the room because there were a lot of groans and booing and stuff <laughs> like that. And that will always stick out in my mind yeah uh, to be to be mansplained um, mm -hmm. which I guess there even using that term mansplained or whatever kind of white splaining or, or whatever we're going to say uh, in terms of a dominant person or that perceived dominance I think the lecture does uh, reinforce that perceived dominance um, but it also can backfire because as in that moment half of us knew he didn't know what he was talking about Mm -hmm. You know, our own personal experiences, it's not slight discomfort. It can be crippling and keep you out of work for a day or two um, for some people. Right. So there's that aspect of it. Um, all, that, that notion that the professor has all this knowledge and that it's just going to download that knowledge through speech, through oration, um, you know, that, that's pretty cool. I, I think, though, um, for those of us who lecture well, and I would say that I actually do lecture well, mm -hmm. um, but when I'm lecturing, and, and that's it, too, you probably know me, in, you know me outside of school, you know that I'm very quiet and that I probably would not initiate conversation or go up and talk to someone or, or anything like that. So I can be a little bit on the shy side. Um, my partner has asked me, well, then, or in, in some ways has asked, how is it that you can just go up in front of a group? Yeah, it's different. That's where it's dance, teacher, dance, where I put in my head for the next 50 minutes, I am on stage and I don't even, I, I call it on stage mm -hmm. um, and I am on and I am using my air quotes with that on that it's a performance. I am right. a different, I have a different persona that comes across a very confident one, etc. cetera. Um, so, and while I was not intending to be racist or anything like that, I'm sure that, and I'm thinking about it, uh, why do I like lecturing? Because I have people who are responsive. I know I can do it well in real time. But mm -hmm. thinking back, has anyone remembered anything I said? Mm -hmm. Or do they remember the projects that engaged them? So while lecturing can be very ego fulfilling and hey, I get to stand in front of however many people as if I am better than them, more knowledgeable, etc. Um, and maybe I am more knowledgeable on that subject matter, but I, I can see where somebody could label it as, as being um, or devolving into being a racist uh, or having some inherent racism in it. Uh, I don't know if it's just racism, but it's definitely, um, it's definitely an elitism and um, it, it implies, you know, I am standing up. Mm -hmm. I am godlike. You are sitting down in rows, faceless, nameless, uh, anonymous rows of people. So, yeah, I guess in, and it's a difference between active learning and passive learning. And why is it that we think the lecture is so great? Why don't I just watch a TED, TED talk? Yeah. Um, so you said a lot of really good stuff that I want to comment to for a second because you talked about this perceived dominance with the professor or the instructor being at the front of the class and all of you are just a sea of you know just spaces you're not unique people you're just faces out there and i'm talking to you because i have all of the knowledge and i have all of the power and i control all of this um but that was not what I saw you do in the classroom and I know that that's not what I did in the classroom because there's a difference between that just you know standing being the sage on the stage versus being somebody who maybe takes students through concepts by working them out on the board and then let me tell you a concept and then let's demonstrate it and then let's 
see you do it, you know, that kind of a thing. I feel like that is a, that probably evolved out of what the old time lecture used to be mm -hmm. um, because they found that, you know, people were not, you can't keep people engaged for like 40 minutes of just talking and stuff like that. But I think that if we're going to really go at this, to be completely honest with you, I think the entire higher education system is just heavily coded. I don't know if I feel comfortable with saying that it's racist necessarily, but it is heavily coded in that Duke, it's Duke University. I read this morning that um, if you had a parent or a grandparent who attended Duke, then you receive a discount on your tuition, which, okay, that's cool. I guess, you know, they want to reward the family for keeping the legacy alive or whatnot. But what happens to those people who 200 years ago, they weren't allowed to go to school, you know? Like, what, what is that? It, by the time anybody who comes from any of those underprivileged environments, backgrounds, uh, communities, any, by the time one of them actually makes it to having a legacy, the rule is going to be gone because it's going to be so unfair. You know what I mean? And so that's an instance where it's like, okay, that right there, I can see where you could easily align that with racism because quite frankly, it favors white supremacy over any other ethnic group when it comes to here in the United States, colleges and universities, most definitely. Um, and Michelle Obama actually talks about this in her book, um, Becoming, which I took a little while to read that one. At first, I wasn't sure. I bought it, and then I wasn't sure if I really wanted to read it. I was like, oh, I really want to read this. What am I going to learn about her that I'm not going to like? But I actually did enjoy it. I, I enjoy who she is as a person. Um, but she talks about that. She talks about when she started at, where'd she go? Harvard? Was it Harvard? I think so. I cannot recall. Okay, I'm pretty sure it was Harvard. It was one of the, the Ivy League schools. And when she started there, that's when she met kids who played things like lacrosse and uh, singles tennis and things like that. Things that she had never heard of coming from Chicago, Illinois. And so, um, and again, that, that's kind of coded too. Like we only have certain types of sports at this school or, you know, only certain types of scholarships available, things like that. Well, you know, you're not going to see a ton of black students who are playing lacrosse like you would see them playing basketball or softball or baseball. So, um, you know, that was kind of my take on it. I think that, yeah, I think that that's going to be my stance is that overall higher education is very coded. And so there are parts of this that are going to look very racist because, I think that that's what everybody's finding out right now is that uh, higher education institutions, especially the really old ones, those have direct ties to the founding of this country. And this country was founded on a lot of racism. And so, you know, you have big institutions like that, that um, I don't know how you rectify that necessarily where you start, but I think that's it's what's happening. I do find it very interesting, um, and, and that may be from being, um, I, I, I think I'm inherently conservative, um, but I don't think that I'm necessarily conservative in all aspects. I, I think I can be very, um, uh, very open-minded about social issues mm -hmm. and such. So um, in, I remember starting college and thinking, um, I, I really dislike the condescending tone, okay, mm -hmm. that, um, I, you know, that I could walk into a classroom and, and I'm, I'm going to take it to the other extreme, okay, uh, going into taking a, a, a Spanish literature course or a, a literature course for, for actually it was, I think it was South American um, short stories. And I remember the, the professor saying, or starting the, the very first lecture with, what's the number one hobby in the United States. I don't, I don't know, baseball, I don't know. I mean, knitting, scrapbooking, what? Um, and he says, wife beating. American men love to beat their wives. And that's how he started it. And I remember at the, I remember dropping the course and it's instantly just saying, I have no idea what this has to do with these, you know, uh, with this Latin, you, you've, you've 
turned it into something that seems very much off topic. And now you are lecturing me um, and, and all that. And, it, you know, you may have a point, but I think it belongs in another class. Or maybe right. can we discuss this at another time, like during a break period, or if you wanted to have a special panel, you know, discussion or something like that. Or like, so, show us the tie. What is the tie yeah. between these? Because I'm really confused right now. Like, I'm really where are confused. you going with this, sir? You know, and, and so hearing that, um, so I remember taking that in and saying, why am I being lectured on on something that's not part of the course? And then, um, and, and it's easy, especially if you have a conservative mindset to say, oh, those damn liberals. Okay. <laughs> except for, um, except for, it, it, I, I don't, um, I didn't necessarily, I'm, I'm using a, the, the far left example. I, I didn't necessarily attribute that to any type of um, uh, I don't know if it's agenda or, or what have you. I, I didn't take it as sinister. I just took it as this, this is your belief. I probably agree with you to some extent, um, but I don't know what it's for. I don't mm -hmm. know why that's being brought up now. Now on the other extreme, you know, and thinking, okay, so you have people who, who have their own agendas and the class, regardless of what they're teaching, will get wrapped around those agendas. Um, but then I can look at the administration and say, you know, in spite of all of these, um, and I'm going to say more of these liberal, this, this, this liberal mindset, in terms of the administration, it was a very conservative, uh, almost mean-spirited um, mindset, where, where I can see where, where, if you're saying that, that idea of it being um, coded, uh, a perceived dominance, I mean, I remember a, a, a one of my college professors, um, he just loved to mention all the time how he went to Harvard, and UCSD is no Harvard. And I wanted to say, you blankety blank, um, you're teaching at the place that's not Harvard. So how can you put it down? Um, right. But that notion or having another, uh, another um, in graduate school, I come from a long line and then he says the last name and, and all that. And um, he definitely was on that pedestal mm -hmm. or put himself on it. And my whole family is educated and blah, blah, blah. So getting to that point when you're talking about um, Duke U University and the idea of legacy scholarships, I think most schools offer a legacy, a legacy legacy grant or scholarship, a break on tuition, something, if, if you have, um, if you have your foot in, if you have a foot in the door. So when I'm thinking of that with that foot in the door, yeah, definitely, it excludes a lot of people. Would you also argue, okay, and we can, I, I, I can't dive into the hearts and minds of my instructors and, and the, the administrators and the pecking order and all that. I did see, though, a very elitist attitude. And um, uh, I am above being told what I can and can't say. And it's, it's not about what you can and can't, but have you thought about what's appropriate? You know, like maybe this course on, Mex on, on excuse me, South American literature should be on South American literature. Right. Um, but if we're going to talk about excluding people, how about tuition? Yeah, I mean, because I, I, I think it was a comedian who mentioned that you know, you can go to a community college or you could go to an Ivy League university. It's the same information. It's the same education. Like it doesn't, you're not learning more. At least you shouldn't be learning more just because you paid more to go to Stanford or, or Duke or Yale, wherever it is that you went. And so, um, you know, tuition and, and, you know, I paid my student loans off this year. Did I tell you that? <laughs> yeah, that was my big yeah. victory for 2020. Um, tuition and the way that this country makes so much money off of the people who go to college thinking that they are going to get that desperate leg up that they need, but instead they come out with a whole bunch of debt and not a lot of options. That is very coded too, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. because we saw what population they were mostly preying on at the school that we worked at. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I think with those tuitions, it, it does become prohibitive. Um, what happens if, I, I mean, I wonder about that, you know, I mean, parents, at least when I was growing up and 
and when I'm saying at least when I was growing up and in my context, and my context is not necessary, I don't think that it's shared across the world or across this country, um, but at least at that age, I thought it was, um, you know, parents saved for college. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about it now. How does a single parent save for college? How, do, how, does, a, how does a couple with five kids save for college? Um, and, that's, and why do we have to save so much? For college. So it seems to be discouraging a lot of people. When I think of these wing nuts um, running around with their guns and uh, just going like um, all of a sudden being concerned about a store in another state being vandalized, um, <laughs> I, I, when it's really, you know, I just want to go shoot my gun at someone. You think there's, there, there's a significant portion of the population that is uneducated by choice, or is it by choice? Um, and that see no value in education because of the things we say, it, you know, they, they pick up on that too. You know, like I don't want to be lectured and I don't want these, these uppity, these uppity white people um, it, telling me what my experience should be mm -hmm. or how I should perceive something. So I get that. I, I wonder too, though, um, it, with those people, are they, are they thinking I need to set aside money to educate my child? Um, and should they have to think that? So I, I think if you haven't, if you're not in it, I think it's very hard to finally get in it if there aren't generations that precede you. So I think we are damning some people uh, uh, away from um, the possibility of an education. Does the education bring a better job? That is highly debatable. Does with all, do you think how many people have college degrees? How many people are in debt? Has it made us a smarter or better or more educated country? Well, and that's just the thing is that, is it smart to go sign yourself up for, to, to be shackled to $48,000 worth of debt just so that you can get a degree? I mean, yeah, the degree is important. I mean, if you are able to get an education, I say take the option if it makes financial sense. And mm -hmm. right now it does not make financial sense. It didn't make financial sense for me to take out loans for my master's degree. Cause that, that's what I had to pay for. My parents got my bachelor's and mm -hmm. I am very, very fortunate that I was in a position where my parents could do that. That was a privilege mm -hmm. that I had. Um, but I paid for my MA and I mean, I think that initially the degree, the, the amount of the loans that I got, it was for 20,000. That was the total amount for the, agree, for the degree. But because of all of the deferments and the interest rates, and I mean, those are the two main things, was all of my deferments, the interest rate that was adding up on it. Um, and I mean, even though it was a smaller interest rate, it still adds up, but my student loans ballooned to $35,000 wow. before I said, holy cheesy, I have got to do something about this. And um, the first step that I took was to, um, and this is just for notes for anybody listening, if you've got student loans, you want to pay them off, you're looking for strategy, that's why I'm telling you this. But what I did was I consolidated, I had two loans, I consolidated into one, first of all, because I don't know about you, but it's easier for me to just make one payment than to make two separate ones. And then after I did that um, with SoFi and I refinanced it down to a lower interest rate for just one loan, then I was able to make those payments. They were still pretty high, but I was on a six-year plan. And then my husband and I were able to refinance and use some of our equity to pay off the rest of it. So that's, that's how I did it. But it took 10 years. That was 10 years ago that I took the loans out. And now I've just paid them off in 2020. So... Um, and we you know, people, tuition, right? yeah, so people who aren't in school and, and young people deciding whether or not they want to go to school, they're aware of what you had to do. You know, that they're, that it, we're, we're not saying anything shocking or new of how hard, how arduous it can be to pay back these loans. It's very so, difficult. And I mean, that, it, it doesn't have to, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's okay. It doesn't have to interrupt your life necessarily because you know, you've known me through this period, you know, that we purchased a house we had a couple of kids, we moved, we purchased mm -hmm. another house. So, I mean, my life still moved forward, but not easily, not with those loans, not easily, no. 
And can you imagine how intimidating that is if, if you're telling someone to take on that debt and you're going to be paying X amount a month once you're finished uh, for this period of time? You know, thinking about that, and if you come from less privilege, mm-hmm. um, it's going to seem even more astronomical. Well, right. and the crazy part about that too is that, you know, nothing wipes away education debt. So when you die, if you have education debt, it just goes to whoever is on your promissory note. That becomes Absolutely. their debt. What kind of a domino effect are we putting onto lesser privileged communities if, I mean, we've already identified, let's not have cognitive dissonance for anyone listening. We've already identified that these are also the same communities of people who die at faster rates. So they're more likely to pass away faster and they have fewer resources for paying back. And when they die, you then pass it on to maybe their sister, maybe their auntie, whoever, and you keep that debt within that community and you keep that boulder tied to that community. Mm -hmm. That seems very racist when you look at it that way. (laughs) You're actually really depressing me right now. I'm so sorry. This is is something I hadn't really thought of the the extent, but I mean, I think of the cost of education and I I question it. I I think of our motives. I think about, uh, you know, some of the arrogance and elitism that we've seen. Um, And that's going to come across in any, uh, in any industry, but I think it, comes across and is very pronounced in it any any job that allows you to lecture other mm-hmm. people <laughs> um yeah that arrogance is going to come through so but this is this is sad because there's the the notion of um generational wealth and maybe that's the privilege i'm born into that yes i can i can afford to have a liberal arts degree i can afford to be an instructor because i know that uh, the my family around me has 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 something to leave me um and can help me through the rough times mm-hmm. um so yeah i am checking my privilege right now and, and yeah there's that general generational wealth um so it's also i would say also it, it, it translates to your ability to be educated or not yeah, um, yeah. And, and the quality I, of your education most definitely and the quality of your choices <laughs> yes that too yeah. Um, something I was thinking about when you were talking about generational wealth is that like, you know how when or, whenever one good thing exists, there's usually always a bad thing that exists too, just in, mm-hmm. in contrast, you know, like you can't have heaven without having hell. You can't have God without having the devil. Like that's just the way it is. There's no way around it. I wonder if the opposite of generational wealth is generational debt. I, I wonder. I, I, I wonder if it is. I, I feel like that's what you would see on the backside, you know, like that's, that's the phantom shadow that follows the generational wealth that, that rises so high. Then you also have generational debt that's accumulating. Um, because really all it takes is two adults making really bad decisions. And then like you can mess a whole generation up with that. And I'm not even kidding about that. I've seen it happen. Yeah, I, it, I I guess the stakes are rather high, and if we're talking about general generational wealth and generational debt, we can also think of third world countries, and even the Pope um, many years ago saying that it, the the righteous thing to do would be to cancel the debt mm-hmm. for these countries because they're never going to get out of it, Correct. and it's going to hold them back. But if you were to cancel the debt. Um, you know, and that, that's really pretty. That's like saying, let's go ahead and cancel student loans. Let's go ahead and put a, a rent moratorium. Let's go ahead and put a foreclosure. That's really great. And I think it is the righteous and, and the good thing to do. But there are people on the other end saying, uh, where's my where dollar? Yeah. You owe me. You owe me. And, is, and they're going to want their money and and such. So yeah, I think it's, it, it is this vicious, this vicious cycle. Um, and can, so yeah, I, I think that if the schools, if we're not doing it through lecture, we're doing it through tuition, we're doing it through the types of opportunity. We could even be doing it through the admissions requirements. Think about what's happened in California this week, or maybe last week with uh, the, the court ruling that the SATs cannot be used. Mm. Um, 
in admissions. You know what? I heard something about that briefly. At this time, I really only look at the news like maybe two days a week, three days maybe, just to get the information I need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to go crazy. So um, I saw something about that and then I didn't look further, but I'm really glad to hear that because I'm somebody who did not do very well on the SATs. Quite frankly, I didn't care to do well on the SATs. I thought it was a stupid, outdated test then. I'm surprised they still exist right now. But I'm glad that they're doing away with that because, I mean, as much as we've learned about pedagogy and how people learn and the different types of environments, to use something that old for a, a, a judgment of whether or not somebody should be let into a school seems a bit much. Mm -hmm. in, 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 part of the reason it was struck down was that it, the, 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 like UC, the UC system said, um, and I, I, actually this law, this applies for the UC system. Um, I don't know how far it extends for, for other colleges um, and universities, but when the UC system said it's no longer mandatory or a requirement to submit test scores. But if you want to, you can. And then so, of course, people who are scoring, you know, uh, 14, 50 and above, um, and probably 1,500 and above, are the ones who are like, yeah, I'll share my test scores with you. And obviously, that gives them a huge edge. So it's that idea of leveling the, leveling the playing field. I guess uh, getting rid of a barrier to entry. There should be, barrier, there should be reasonable barriers to entry. I want people who are capable of completing a degree. You know, um, mm -hmm. I don't want it so, so easy to get in that people get in and drop out. I understand that. But these other barriers to entry are making sure that we only get more of the same. We get more of the same of uh, people walking around saying, now, let me lecture to you. Let me impart my knowledge to you. Um, should we really be doing that? You know, I, I, I see it. It's a very interesting idea and, and such that that whole lecturing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, it, it, even the word is wrong. And I think about that too. When, when people say, are you, are, are you a professor? And I say, well, I profess nothing. <laughs> I'm an instructor. I instruct. I'm not a professor. I'm not a lecturer. Um, although yes, I am a lecturer because I get up in front of the, I, I get up in front of a group and knowing the limits of of that lecture right yeah the lecture is, you, yeah right yeah the lecture i don't think that the lecture should ever stand alone as the only tool to students gaining mastery yeah i I don't want you to feel depressed, though. That was one thing that oh, I wanted to come back to. Is it, that I, don't, I wasn't trying to make you feel bad. And anybody who's listening right now, too, I'm not trying to um, guilt anybody with this necessarily. It's more so just looking at how I think a lot of things are hitting, like, well, no, they're not even hitting. I think they're past their expiration date in this country. Mm -hmm. And we just haven't done an audit. We haven't done a revision of a lot of these things. And so that's why it's all coming up now because, you know, we're, we're you don't looking think it's at the problem that our leaders are all over a certain age and m maybe might not know <laughs> that there's yeah. a different reality. Right. I, My I, dad I worry, was talking I worry, about that. You know, like, do they know that, it, that, that uh, we have more people right now, more young adults are living at home than, than in like since the depression. Mm -hmm. or, or what have you. Um, so those are, you're right. The system, so many things are broken. Education, which I think is one of the foundations of our country and the foundations of a civilization. I think education is badly damaged. That's why we're recovering academics, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's something that if we could, if maybe it needs to be addressed more assertively, more aggressively. Um, and when we're talking about that arrogance too, I mean, it, was it last or last time we were talking, or you mentioned the the, the dean who did a little interpretive dance uh, that mm -hmm. expressed how tone deaf she was to the students' concerns. You know that that idea. I'm so I'm so intelligent and so creative. Uh, another thing that I really, um, if, if we're talking about lecturing and the the disparity in terms of the power disparity. Um, and some of the insults of it. How insulting is it also to um, 
to be part of a group and have an outsider who has the, the doctorate in it uh, lecture you on. I, I mean, I, I've been lectured um, by a white professor telling me I should be proud of my Chicana heritage. Mm. Um, and where I'm saying, okay, uh, f first off, you know, it, there's, there's a political connotation that I don't necessarily agree with there. Mm -hmm. um, but you're telling me what I should feel. And it's interesting. Now, if it had been a Hispanic professor telling me I should, I would maybe take it a little bit more, uh, more seriously. I've had, um, you know, it, 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 that too, that idea that, oh, I have to be saved by mm. this outsider. This outsider has more knowledge of my experience than I do. Mm. It's, it's like the, it, it's, I had a poetry uh, professor, uh, very good looking man, um, God. And he Ooh. would, um, you know, it was all mansplaining. He was oh. telling us what women wanted and, you know, oh, this speaks, you know, this poet's, this poet knew how to woo the, and like, really? Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, you're telling me what I should feel. And then um, I remember his, him saying something um, about a, a poem because we all had to write a poem and that I should write more about what I know. And I was thinking, okay, so I wrote about baseball and I would say I'm pretty knowledgeable about baseball. I mean, I eat, drink and, and breathe baseball, or at least during those for, for a good eight years of my life, it was my obsession, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I should write about, and with that, it's like, realizing what should I write more? Ooh, you know, you could write it. And I think, I can't remember if it was writing about my, uh, writing about my vagina or writing about menstruation. He, he made a comment like that. And it was, it was like, seriously. Okay. Ugh. Um, I, I'm being told by a man that I should, uh, wow. Stick to your lady things. Oh my God. You know, oh yeah. I don't want <laughs> my lady parts. Yeah. Stick to your lady stuff. Your lady <laughs> Okay, because that's what I—that's what I know. Um, yeah. So I can see, you know, like the more I think about it, because you are catching me off guard when we, we share the topic with me right here live. Yeah. The more I think about it, I can see exactly why why lecturing is is this practice that has these unfair. Um, there, it, it allows the lecturer to assume. Uh, yeah. To assume I belong here. I have enough enough knowledge to to lecture you you do not know enough about this well and I remember that one of the things that I used to dislike about lectures is that if I didn't know the professor very well like we didn't have rapport or anything I often felt uncomfortable asking questions oh yeah because um, asking questions is a measure in communication and often the person who you're communicating with, who you're asking a question to, they've got to kind of pick up on what it is that you're saying in order to understand your question and answer it properly. And in my experience, the best way to get that done is to establish rapport. But that takes a little while. And so, you know, there were times when I would skip asking about things and I probably hurt my chances in certain areas with completing assignments or just knowing about different you know, happenings on campus or not. Um, but, you know, there's, there's that disparity. And I mean, I'm somebody who tends to be pretty assertive. I'm pretty, I've always been somebody who was outgoing and um, who talks to people. I've always been an extrovert. I would say I'm on the line, like right where extroverts meets introverts, because I'm more introverted as an extrovert. But um, anyway, so, um, I just wonder if like there's, when it comes to, because I remember I had a professor who didn't let us ask very many questions. He would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and not let us ask very many questions. And so eventually we all figured out that what he's talking about is the stuff that's going to be on the test. So just write down everything that he's talking about and then that's going to help you for the test. But truth be told, is that an effective way to prepare people for the real world? Because if you are having to guess at this person's expectations, there's no avenue of communication. I mean, some students will step forward and they will, they will speak up and they will advocate for themselves, but a lot of them are really shy. I mean, we're still young at this age, you know? You're still in your late teens, early 20s when you're in college, most people. Mm -hmm. And so you're still developing your backbone at that point. And I mean, even as a confident-ish student, I still felt intimidated about speaking up at times. So I know that the people out there who 
feel very intimidated in situations like that. Not that they are any measure weaker than I am, not at all. It's just their personality is different. Those people are at a severe disadvantage if they aren't able to establish rapport with the instructor. And I think that an environment like that is what sets up the really crappy management styles that I've seen in so many of these office places where, you know, your, your boss is just barking orders. They are barely intelligible or understandable. They're not available for you to speak to because this person's plate is overfull. They just have too much on it. They're doing too much. So you can't even get an email back from them. And then when you take your best stab at it, here they come with all the things that are wrong with it. And it's like, okay, it's fine for you to critique. But at the same time, you gave little to no direction. And now you want to come down on me and, and give me a consequence when truthfully your communication style is what set us on the path of failure. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the lecture style sort of guides us into that, that monstrosity nicely from college into the workplace. So there's, there's, that, that's interesting um, two points that you make there. Uh, you're saying that it doesn't prepare you for the real world where you have to guess at another person's expectations. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually say, no, I, I think that is the real world. We have no idea what anyone else, because all of us have gone, uh, those of us who have gone through college and hold management uh, positions, we're still in that lecture mode, like you're yeah, saying. Yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, it's one-way communication. It's not seeking, uh, it's not stopping, and uh, it's not reflective communication. Um, it, like, it's stopping, does this make sense? Do you feel comfortable asking questions, etc.? cetera? Mm -hmm. um, and then the other point that you make about, you know, like the traditional college student is very young, um, and, and college is where they, they find their voice, their backbone. I'm going to say I, I've seen a lot of non-traditional students in their 50s, 60s, uh, 50s and 60s who, uh, who gain also get gain their back their backbone and their voice in college mm -hmm. so i think college can be very transformative for a lot of people most definitely mm -hmm. and i would actually say that some of those students in the population you just mentioned who are in their 50s and 60s they're later into their career um i would say that they kind of suffer from the same thing because i've seen it where they feel like all these youngsters get it and I don't. So let me just be quiet so I don't embarrass myself. And Or the ones who do speak and then are mocked endlessly by the younger people. Yeah, and that, that, that comes down to classroom management. That's very difficult, challenging to deal with, but that's classroom management. And, and the instructor has to be able to get a handle on that. And one would hope with that, but how about when in terms of classroom management and such, are, are lectures taught classroom management? No, because I'm the only one speaking. There's no feedback. There's nothing, or, or there's, there's no um, verbal feedback. Mm -hmm. So they don't have, I, I don't know if the, the pressure for classroom management versus I'm going to model something, you're going to practice it. That I really have to manage. Um, also in terms of classroom management, are lecturers taught to are how aware are you and i know this because i would i would evaluate instructors i would i had a a diagram of the classroom and i would x off which areas they looked at and say do you realize you never look at the entire left side of your classroom mm. you're, you're missing like x number of students and whether they have questions uh, whatever their reactions are etc or even i would mark them with circles who they called on are you aware that you call on the same three people all the time and that intimidates other people from speaking and right. you probably know this as being a student i think anyone here who has been a student has also acknowledged that why even bother they're going to call on so and so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah and in the same way you also so there's this teacher who is calling on the same student or there's the one student who just dominates conversation and it's like, oh, shut up. I don't want to hear from you. I want to hear from somebody else, like maybe the instructor or another student. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, the more, the further that we look at this, the more, I guess I kind of see it and I can agree a little bit more in terms. I, I mean, I think I'm still at the same point where I feel that lecturing is definitely part of a coded process, but the coding process in higher education is very closely aligned with racist policies when you look at them deeper. And not intentional. I don't think that any, I don't 
think it's intentional, but then we're getting into, I'm going back on my Catholic and my, my Catholic school upbringing, that there are sins of omission. There are things we fail to do. So mm -hmm. I don't think while it's not deliberate, it does show maybe uh, a carelessness with, with one's, um, with one's responsibility. Yeah, because at this point, I mean, and that's why when we were talking earlier, I was saying that, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to take this really down to the base and redo it when it comes to all of this institutional racism that's just woven throughout the history of the United States. Um, but I lost my train of thought. Let me think about it again. No, I... I, I I, I, Something I was actually thinking about asking you about too, and we can sure. pick this up if this goes well, but uh, what about like Lori Loughlin and her husband buying their child's way into USC and all that shit? Like what, what is like, okay, so we're taking the SATs off the table. So that means that for, for UCs. But maybe so USC see, probably still uses it. They're I, a private university. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're going to be different. But um, yeah. So what about that? That part where we have people like you were talking about how it's unintentional and how, you know, a lot of this is like legacy and stuff. And most of these universities, they have family members that, you know, they've all come to the same university, blah, blah, blah. And then on the other side, you know, leveling the playing field on the other side, we have people with affluence already. And it's like, why are you buying your way in? First of all, what does your child need the degree for? If, if both of you have companies that are successful? Well, I think that's, that goes back to the notion of Lux Populi. Um, it, and I, I read a, a wonderful um, article, essay on it many, many years ago. But this notion in, in, in the article it was mentioning, I think it was a review of a book, actually, mm -hmm. that... Um, you know, Jade was so very precious and rare and only, um, you know, only an emperor could have it. But when it, when other people, when the, uh, when the merchant has amassed enough money, the merchant immediately goes and buys the thing that the king has or the emperor mm -hmm. has, the jade. And then the jade isn't enough anymore for the emperor. And then everyone below the merchant is like, well, now the merchant has it. I have to have it. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a symbol of status that everyone wants this luxury, this divine, uh, this divine product. And maybe, it, it, maybe with a lot of these college campuses, uh, that's where their prestige, that, that right there, prestige almost has, it carries that racist undertone yeah. prestige is it's it's just the speak for this is something that only a few people can possess and i really don't want you wearing it could you imagine if every poor person suddenly wore um suddenly wore uh dior or louis vuitton then no one would want D a dior or louis, louis vuitton so i think when we're talking about the Lori laughlin's of the world seeing as what is the new status what is the what what can i buy for my child that is so exclusive how about this college education and mm -hmm. my child can always oh i'm a trojan i you know and I, I, i'm a, a trojan and, and my sister's a trojan and my children will be trojans you know that that notion that's what they're buying into is just this idea i'm i'm getting something that used to be exclusive to the most um to the to the to the scholars well to the wealthy scholars to the, right. the privileged scholars right so uh now it's read and had money those were the people who were educated all of those things so i i think right there it's um chasing status again and it's funny uh, it, it, it's such an extreme example. They spent a half million dollars to get their daughters in on a lie about them being athletes, which they're not, in a sport that is so very exclusive too. Why didn't they ch ch select? Um, yeah. Why, yeah, why I was kind of curious that? about that too. I'm like, why? Why did you choose that? Why not choose something more common? I don't understand. Yeah. But oh, because it would be common. Don't you oh, get it? it would okay, be sorry. I don't know how to play this so, game. I'm not good at this. So I, I think that right there too, and that the colleges that, that they turned a blind eye to it. They knew it was happening. There's yeah. how too many people were involved. They knew it was happening and they benefit from that. They benefit from, ah, yes, we are prestigious. We are exclusive. We mm -hmm. are hard to get into mm -hmm. um, and, and, and such. We're everything but academic. Yeah. You know, and, and when you, when you 
take into account all of the things that are happening in the peripheral when it comes to college and university life and how they run and things like that. Um, it, you can easily lose sight of the academics and that's the sad part because it was supposed to be something where people got information to help better themselves. But now it's funny how education costs so much but we don't value educators the way that like okay. other countries do, you know, like over, I've had friends go teach in China and they say that the students will not sit down until the teacher sits down because that's a sign of respect mm -hmm. over there. Uh, they, they treat teachers like they're royalty over there because teachers are educating the new generation. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that that's a pretty intelligent way to go about things. Um, but here in the U.S., for some reason, we have all of these disparities. You know, public school teachers are crappy. Public school is crappy. That whole system, people seem to be abandoning it. But then higher education is very elite, very expensive, very, you know, you got to pick where you go and it's the name and it's the, the reputation and all those things. And it's like, well, is education important or not? Because the message doesn't seem to be consistent across the board. And I know we're, we're straying far now from the whole lecturing being racist stuff, but I would well, say it's part of the same problem. Yes. We're dealing with a broken system. Um, and it, it, it is so broken. And it, um, how do you fix it? Do you fix it incrementally? What can someone, if, if I am a lecturer, if I'm an instructor and I have to lecture, I'm a professor and I have to lecture if I'm a anyone and I have to lecture what can I do so that I'm not playing into the negative aspects of lecturing you gotta and reach maybe, out to your students yeah so maybe maybe that's part of it maybe it is pausing now I, I think um, a lot of people a lot of instructors do this I had it I had myself timed eight minutes maximum that I could speak before asking questions and involving other people mm -hmm. then another eight minutes and then stop um, and, and got very disciplined on on my eight minute rule mm -hmm. to, I, I have to let the students speak yeah um, also I started keeping track of how many times I called on each person mm -hmm. you know and making sure am I and then also letting that person know hey you know thank you I'm I, let's hear from another person Yes. And you know, let's, okay hear, let's hear a different voice. Yeah, it's, it's perfectly okay to say, hey, I appreciate your participation right now. We're going to listen to some other people. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with saying that. If a student has an issue with that, then, you know, let them know that this isn't a private class. Everybody's in here. And that's part, of, that, that's part of the performance is knowing how to let someone down, somebody who is eager for that attention. I mean, we, that's part of the classroom management, which I wish more people would, would take to heart. How do, I, how do I keep this situation equal? And I think that might be part of why the lecture continues to stay alive. The old school lecture, like what we are talking about and what this article seems to be referring to. Um, I think it's because there are quite a few people in the classroom who don't want to turn it over to questions and, and feedback because they're intimidated by that. And I recognize that feeling because I remember having that feeling myself when I first started teaching or when I was teaching subjects that I was kind of new to and I needed to get more familiar with what examples I was going to use to drive this home for my students. It becomes intimidating. But to that I say, you signed up for this. Mm -hmm. So you have to, I mean, the idea of not opening yourself to questions or to discussion, that sounds ridiculous to me because how are students supposed to take stake in what you're talking about if you won't let them interact with the material? Um, but I think that's why it, it lives on the same way that a lot of this privilege and a lot of this coding and stuff lives on because people are comfortable. I think it's more comfortable to say, I'm going to talk for 15 minutes and then we got to get the hell out of here so we can go to our next courses and take up the whole time and then run out of there with your briefcase and don't let anybody talk to you. It's easier to do that and it's more comfortable to do that. And, and then just get an email later and answer emails. Exactly. Um, if, if they even answer the emails. If they but, do. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, the, the notion that the lecture is, uh, this is a performance I, can, I have 100% control over versus I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to lecture for a moment, I'm going to model it, 
and then I'm going to walk you through it. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of planning and a lot of effort. And I think too, it takes a lot of humility. Yes. Uh, because, because they're not getting it. That yeah, means you is it, failed. Is it because they're dumb or is it because I'm, so another thing one could do if one's trying to avoid it, it, it trying to avoid these, um, these practices that, that exclude people. Um, another thing to do would possibly let's revisit some standard, some, some standard teaching practices, an entrance slip, an exit slip, um, how, find out how much they know before the lecture and then quiz them again at the end of the lecture, a low stakes. This does not affect your grade. I just want to know coming into it. And then you demonstrate to the student, this is how much I know. And on that lecture, uh, on that exit slip, even putting a question, is there anything you still have a question about? Mm -hmm. that was not answered during the class uh, and I'll bring it up at the next session mm -hmm. you know so an opportunity for students and and the, the more quiet students the ones who um, would never speak in front of a group have an opportunity then to pose a question yeah. so it's it's a little bit more effort and that does mean that I have to debrief I have to look at the beginning okay you know what I just I'm looking at my my prime I, I'm looking at my the entrance slip and everyone said they knew all of these items and I still lectured. Wow. You know, maybe I needed to bump it up to the next level. Maybe mm -hmm. I needed to adapt that way. Um, looking at the exit slip. Oh crap. No one learned anything. Yeah. You know, either they're all idiots or I did not teach this well. Right. So, so we have to, so it's a lot of, um, and maybe that's it, the lecturing, that idea of uh, the sage on the stage, that one-way communication, I think is inherently wrong. Yeah, um, I but think I think it comes, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, go ahead, sorry. please finish. No, I, I was just saying that maybe that's it, is that I think there's a place for lecturing, but it definitely cannot be the bulk of instruction. It should be part of instruction, but there has to be that humbling moment where you hand it over to the students who let you know whether you taught it right, um, and who also may perform differently than what you expected. When I've given out assignments, and I think the instructions are crystal clear, and I get back the product, and I'm like, this is not what I was asking for. Mm -hmm. And then I look at the instructions. It's like, oh, there are 18 different ways you could misinterpret this. You know, I should have thought of this, um, you know, or looking at what they did misinterpret and thinking, wow, I'm so glad you misinterpreted it because you're showing me an aspect I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. So it does, it does require a little bit of that humility that this is, I, I'm a facilitator. Yeah. yeah. And I can provide to, a lecture. To that end, I was just going to say that I think that the part of the problem too is that a lot of education and a lot of everything used to be standardized black and white so that you know exactly what's going to happen every single day. But that's not practical, not if you want to find success in your classroom. If you mm -hmm. want your students to pick up the material and understand it and be able to relate it in ways that make sense to them so that they can then explain it, because that's the real measure of whether or not they learned, um, then I don't think standardizing your, your classroom schedule is the way to go. I think you should have an idea of what you're covering, like your syllabus, but the idea that I'm just going to lecture today and that's it, and if it doesn't go as planned, then everything falls apart that's a problem because you might have to go back. You might have to skip forward. You know, it, it part of being a skilled educator is uh, having that agility to adjust based on mm -hmm. what your students are telling you, what they're giving you. I know I've gone into the classroom at times and thought, okay, we're going to breeze through this material. And it took the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then there were other times that I was planning for something to take the entire session and they just got it. They just picked it up and it was like, okay, I don't need to be banging this into their heads because they get it. So let's move on. I'm not going to insult their intelligence that way. So, um, yeah, that would be, I mean, if there's any piece of advice or takeaways that we're leaving people with, that would be my biggest one is don't try to standardize education that way. It, 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 and it's, it, it's um, learning what your students value. Mm -hmm. and and how does what I'm teaching fit into your values? Mm -hmm. um, or even if you don't value what I'm teaching, how do I make it valuable to, to you? I, I think of, um, of, of Edmund Wilson 
well, whenever I think of the, 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 the quotation, um, there are no boring subjects, just boring writers, you know, and I think of, I think of Edmund Wilson, you can, he can write a, an essay on ants and it's captivating. Um, I can read, uh, I can read the double helix and learn about, uh, learn about, um, genomes and such and just say this is beautiful writing it, it's interesting so it, it's it, you know and it's not necessarily uh, my field or anything that I'm, I'm interested in um, I think that that's the the burden of the teacher it, it just like as in writing I have I have my speciality my job is to impart this knowledge and get to the point where you're comfortable and confident in using it for your purposes, um, which means I need to know what your purposes are. Mm -hmm. I need to also know, are you comfortable? I need to know if you're confident. So it's not really one way, um, but, but, but that idea that I have to, um, I have to refine it. I, I have to adapt what I'm teaching so that it is interesting. There are no boring lecture. There are no boring topics, just boring lectures. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very true. And on that note, I think that we can close this episode out. I enjoyed this and I can tell you were surprised by the topic, but that's the point. And you get to surprise me next time. So it'll be my turn to be caught off guard and, you know, just kind of kicking ideas around in my brain. But um, those of you out there listening, Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we need to set up our social media and our website and all that stuff, but you can find our podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, um, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And yeah, once we get social media set up, I'll be sharing those, possibly a website too. Uh, but thank you so much for tuning in to Recovering Academics. I'm Antoinette. I'm Elizabeth. And take care. <laughs>